So tonight we're talking about the Protestant Reformation. And I need to give you a couple notes before we begin. What I'm hoping to accomplish here is something that is a little more heady than we usually get into. Um, many times evangelical Christians are accused of not being uh, very cerebral. Um, maybe our, uh, you know, our, um, our grammar is disparaged because we don't talk so good or something like that. So we want to push back against that just a little bit and make sure that we understand uh, where we are, why we're here, where we have come from. Protestant Reformation is an incredibly uh, uh, important moment in the history of the church and in the history of the world. A couple of things I want to make note of before we get started. I'm going to use some phrases in here that um, if you don't know my heart, you might think that they are meant to be barbs toward the Catholic Church. Not my intention. So I'm going to talk about the true, I'm going to use the phrase, the true biblical gospel. And I do believe that what we believe is the true biblical gospel. I mean, otherwise I would not be a pastor in a Protestant church, okay? So all my cards are out on the table. It's just important that I say that. Uh, I, I have friends who are in the Catholic Church today. Uh, you may have friends, family members who are in the Catholic Church. Our intention is not to throw Molotov cocktails at anybody, but it is to make sure that we do understand what it is that we believe and how it differs from, uh, the, the, from uh, some other points in the history of the church and even today in the Catholic Church. Uh, so that's, that's one thing. The other thing that I would like to to point out is that toward the end, I don't want this to just simply be a lecture. I want to make sure that we're able to, that we're able to attach the things that we're talking about to the heart. Uh, because all knowledge should be devotional. Everything that we learn that is true about our God should feed love for Him. That's our goal tonight. Does that make sense? So, uh, as we're beginning, let's ask God's blessing on our time, and, uh, and we will begin. Lord, you are so kind to us. Thank you for uh, showing us um, through even the study of church history, which is kind of a departure from what we typically do on Sunday night as we look to, to the history of the church. I pray that we would be able to see your kindness seen through your dealings with men, your dealings with your church. Lord, we know that there is always a remnant, no matter how dark, no, no matter how trimmed, uh, you know, the, um, the wick gets or how uh, fading the flame is on the lamp. Lord, we know that you always preserve a believing remnant of your church in every age, um, even today. Lord, we pray that we would be a part of that remnant. We pray that we would carry the message of the gospel well, and we know that there is one gospel that has been delivered to the saints once for all. We pray that tonight we would learn how to better confess that gospel. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, one of the things we need to understand about the Reformation uh, is when we're reading through maybe in, in high school history class, it's easy to think that things were going along in a certain kind of speed, in a certain kind of tenor, and then boom, one day the Reformation happened and everything was changed. 
We, we, we tend to think of history in these little compartments, right? But we know from our lives um, how, how fluid much of history is. Days kind of bleed into one another and years kind of bleed into one another. But we know that we, we don't know which day it was that it happened, but we came to believe something that maybe 10 years ago we didn't believe. We, we can't tell you which day it happened, but through the, the flow of time, um, we changed. Through the flow of time, history changed. We might can point back to moments when, when a law changed in our land, but when did it really happen that the people came to believe what was necessary to cause that law to come into being, right? Well, the, the Protestant reformers, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, other men that we're going to talk about tonight, they were deeply medieval thinkers. In other words, they, didn't, they weren't born thinking Reformation kind of thoughts. They were men of their time, and, and what this means is that they, they were brought up during a period of time of, of great cultural upheaval. Many things were happening in the culture around them that formed them into the men that they were. There was great technical, technological advance. The printing press came to be during their age. And then there was a changing mindset. With the, the advent, with the creation of the printing press, there was a general rise in the education of the people. Because it finally became possible to read, more people were trying to read, if that makes sense. So you can imagine what was happening in the water around these men, causing the, the culture around them to look at the church through a different lens. Imagine, I mean, imagine coming to church on Sunday morning and me delivering a sermon in a language that you can't understand. And then you leave and go home, and for the other six days of the week, you don't read the Bible because there's not one at your home. And so everything that you believe is formed out of those two realities. You don't have a Bible that you can read yourself. And when you come to church, you don't even understand what the pastor is saying. You can imagine what begins to happen when people begin to be able to read. This moment in history reminds me of the era of the New Testament. God was pleased to use a certain moment in history to bring about His ends. Do you know that, that when the New Testament was written... The Koine Greek. Koine is just a word that means common. That there was such a unity in the Roman Empire. There was such a... Um, the world was so small because it was, most of it was contained by this one Roman Empire. And most of the people could speak the same language. And it was into that era of the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, where there was generally not much war going on. There was general unity among all these peoples, and most of the people could speak the same language. It was into that very moment that God was pleased to give us the New Testament so that the gospel would catch on like wildfire. You know, just in the last couple of weeks, it's been so dry. There's been these red flag warnings here because it would just take a spark for a flame to run across a field, to go through the woods. That was the kind of conditions that were, uh, th those conditions were 
in place for the gospel to spread like it did. We understand that the spread of the gospel was not simply a cultural phenomenon. God was doing something. And in the same way, I believe in the Protestant Reformation, as people were able to read, as news was able to travel, these Protestant reformers were writing these tracts and they were able to to, uh, circulate and people were able to understand the gospel. This medieval period that these men rose out of, it's it's been inappropriately called the, the Dark Ages. That's kind of a... Imagine the arrogance that we have when we look back on a period of time and call it the Dark Ages. Really, what was happening during the medieval era was there was all kinds of fruitful Christian thought and doctrine being, being uh, um, formed during this time. I'll just give you one quote from uh, Thomas Aquinas. He said this during this very period. We commit a sinful act by turning to a temporal attraction without being duly directed to our last end. You know what he's saying there? He's saying that sin is not just a list of do's and don'ts. He's saying that sin is an attitude of the heart that does anything without that thing being directed toward God. In other words, he's saying that sin is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the affections. It's not just a list of do's and don'ts. It's the heart that is the seat of of who we are. In the water of the culture, moreover, the humanist movement rallied under the battle cry, Ad Fontes. Ad Fontes just means to the sources or to the fountains. You can imagine what what Fontes and fountains, you see the similarities in those words. And so what was happening during this period of time through the humanist movement, which is not at all to be confused with modern humanism, secular humanism, is not at all the same thing. But what was happening here is that there was this battle cry. People were saying, go back to the old sources and read them. This was happening in all different spheres and literature and all different areas of life. Well, it pleased God to cause some Christians to do the very same thing with the Bible. They went ad fontes. They went to the sources. They went back to the Bible. And what they found there ignited the Protestant Reformation. Um, All of this is the backdrop to something happening. When the many abuses of the Roman Catholic Church were considered in this time, toward the late Middle Ages, the scene was ripe for people to respond to it in a different way. Let me give you a few examples of abuses and then the rising heroes that, that came up. At one point in the 1100s, did you know this? There were three competing popes. Um, different councils had elected these popes and there were three. Uh, one uh, was in Avignon, another one was, uh, or two other were in other places trying to uh, basically compete for the papacy. So you can imagine what's happening in the minds of people if they believe that the that the church has one head, and that head is the Pope. And the Pope has the ability to speak infallibly. He doesn't do it all the time. It's not that every word that comes out of his mouth is perfect, but when he speaks ex ex cathedra, he can speak infallibly. Well, you can imagine the questions that are going through the people's minds when there are three Popes. Which one's right? 
Well, clearly, they each think that they're right. So there's one, one kind of thing that's happening during this time in the 1100s. Pope Nicholas V, he, he had grand designs on building a temple so grand that it would seem to be rather a divine than a human creation. The problem was he needed a way to fund this cathedral. He wanted to move the, the, the cathedral to, uh, to Rome, to what we know now as the Vatican, but he needed to fund it. By the eve of the Reformation, the church was selling indulgences. Now, you know what indulgences are. Indulgences aren't Oreo cookies or something. And I, I need to indulge my sweet tooth here. Indulgences were basically grace that you could per- purchase from the church. It was basically forgiveness for sins that was up for sale. And you could purchase these, these indulgences, which would in turn fund the projects of the church. Um... Add to this the fact that only the clergy partook of the Lord's Supper, of communion. So this morning we observe the Lord's Supper, but in these days, do you know that only once a year did the people partake? Uh, every, day, every Lord's Day, uh, when the Mass was held, people would come into the church, and only the clergy would partake of the Lord's Supper. But it's no problem, the church said, because the church held that if you just simply watched them do it, you would receive grace because the Catholic Church held that grace itself, forgiveness for sin in some way, and I'm not an expert, somehow grace was conferred to the people through the Lord's Supper. And so by coming in and watching the priest partake, you could be a recipient of that. Uh, Further, there was a practice called pluralism that was going on. Pluralism is this. You see, in the Roman Catholic Church, every priest had a parish, right? A parish is just a geographical area that that pastor, that priest was responsible for. Well, the problem is, uh, is that each parish came with a salary. And what would happen is, when one priest over here died, or, or that parish became available, uh, the, the priest over here would desire to be the priest over there too. And if he was responsible for two parishes, he would get two salaries. This pluralism, which means having plural parishes just for the sake of money, led to another word called absenteeism. These priests, many times, were not even responsible for any parish. They were just on paper the priest for that area. And they would have two or three or more salaries, and the people, the sheep, were not getting fed. They had no access to their pastor. This caused John Huss, very much a Catholic. I mean, these men themselves, by the way, are Catholic, right? The, the, the Reformation was a movement from within the church. This is not people from the outside lobbing stones at the Catholic church. These were men saying, we've got to add fontes here. We've got to get back to the sources. We need to return to the Word. And John Huss was led to say this, Formerly, it was hardly possible to find a man willing to be a bishop <laughs> because it involved being poor and ready for martyrdom. In other words, back in the good old days, if you wanted to be a pastor, you, you, you were going to be poor and you had better be ready to die. There weren't a whole bunch of people lining up around the block to do that job. But he says, but now, when a bishop dies, anyone who has a chance strives for the episcopacy. In other words, they're all trying to get into that slot. John Huss also remarks in a, in a book that I have footnoted there about... Um, 
about a, a particular parish coming open and something like either 21 or 24 people vying for that same job just because of the benefits that it brought. If you look on the back, here's another one of our heroes, um, John Wycliffe. Wycliffe believed that the only way to correct the abuses of the Pope and of the church was for the common person to have the Bible in his own language. So, uh, a language that he could understand. So, Wycliffe translated the Bible, or at least he advocated such that it was done, for a translation of the Bible directly from the Latin Vulgate into Middle English. He believed that the people themselves needed to be able to have the Word of God. The Reformation was very much a grassroots movement in many ways. Um, there, were, there were people um, uh, such as John Wycliffe. He, he, committed, he committed his last days on earth to building up a body of poor preachers so that they could go out and tell people the gospel and give access to the Word of God very much for the very first time. John Calvin likewise had what is called a company of pastors that trained under him and they, they sent them out into the rural areas. It's, it's actually very strange. Many times today, the cities are the seat of cultural uh, or of, of theological rot. Uh, if, if you want to find uh, a church that is no longer preaching the gospel, typically you can go to the largest city near you and whatever First Baptist church that is, they're probably not preaching the gospel. That's just a rule of thumb. Maybe, maybe only 60% of the time, but uh, that's, that's the, the sad reality. And you go into the rural, rural areas and they're preaching the gospel. Back in Calvin's day, it was in the cities where they were preaching the gospel and in the rural areas where they didn't uh, have access to the Word of God. They didn't have access to um, the, the changes and the good changes that were being brought about by the Protestant Reformation. So Calvin believed, I need to get a bunch of pastors around me, train them up, and send them out. That's very much what he was doing. It was a grassroots movement. Well, what did John Wycliffe get in return for all of his hard labor? Forty-three years after his death, officials exhumed his remains, burned them, and threw his ashes into the River Swift. That's what they thought of old Wycliffe. John Huss followed Wycliffe. John Huss uh, was a, a, a Czech man, and he was part of the Czech Reformation. John Wycliffe was an English reformer, and John Huss was influenced by Wycliffe. As a matter of fact, when people were trying to come after John Huss... They called him a Wycliffeite. In other words, John Wycliffe was so hated that they said, all right, let's throw some mud on this Huss guy by calling him a Wycliffeite, right? Uh, he received a number of John Wycliffe's books and he developed that thought further. What he was mainly after was attacking the church for its evil practice of simony. Now, simony comes from that story in Acts chapter 8 where Simon, the magician, is converted, but he kind of has some, maybe some unsanctified ideas, right? Simon comes to Peter and he says, I've seen you, you know, when, when you lay on hands and, and miracles happen, I, I, could I give you some money? Could I pay you to have that same power? And Peter says, I mean, basically I'm paraphrasing, woe to you for you think that the power of God can be bought. John Huss was very upset at what was happening in the church because the church itself was selling, was seeking to sell the power of God. They thought that it could be purchased. 
I read you a quote here from John Huss. He said, this is in italics. In regard to the granting of, of indulgences for money, St. Peter well shows by his refusal to sell to Simon the power of laying on hands on men that they might re just receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, that such indulgences are improper. But now the priests, because of their avarice, they vie, in other words, they compete with one another in a race to buy indulgences. And here's the crux of it. And the people, wishing to rid themselves of their sins by a payment of money, do not repent rightly. You see, this was the concern for John Huss. He wasn't just upset at the church. He was saying to the church, look at what you're forfeiting. By you telling people that they can purchase forgiveness, you, you, are, you are withholding from them the real means of their being right with God. There are people who are thinking that they are okay with God because they have done some ritual at the church, but they're not okay with God because you have not preached the gospel and you have not told them that simply by repenting and turning away from their sins, they can be free. This was the problem. It was on to this scene that Martin Luther finally emerged. You see, John Huss, of course, was burned at the stake. John Huss was killed for doing this work. And Martin Luther, very much believing that the same fate would come to him, nailed the 95 theses to the door of the castle church at Wittenberg. But before that, we need to get into a little bit of who was Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a man who, uh, ironically, um, studied law. His father... Uh, desired for him to be a lawyer. Um, his father desired that maybe he should even be a priest. Something in, in those days, it was easy, easier work. In other words, it didn't break your back. You were either working inside or outside in those days. And most parents wanted for their kids to be working inside so they would not be consigned to an early death. But Luther had a tormented conscience. He knew how much of a sinner he was, but he didn't know how to be free of those sins. He entered a monastery thinking, well, if I just become a monk, surely those are the people who are right with God. If I can just enter a monastery and give my whole life to God, then, then surely those are the people that God will accept. He entered a monastery and delved into a life of asceticism, which is just self-denial, not eating very much, going to confession all the time. As a matter of fact, his confessor, which is just a name for the priest who took his confessions, basically said, Martin Luther wore me out just listening to him. He was confessing all the time, and he was always worried that he would never confess enough. He was uh, tortured by this conscience. I'm picking up the wrong book here. I want to read to you from Roland Bainton's history. This, this book is in our church library, by the way, just a great, reachable uh, life of Martin Luther. Uh, Roland Bainton is a great historian. Uh, he is a, a theological liberal, um, so probably doesn't believe in the resurrection or the exclusivity of Christ for salvation, but he's an excellent historian. I would I'll commend this book to you. Roland Bainton says this, pages 46 and 48 uh, of, his, of his book, if I can turn there. <clears throat> But there still remains the problem of the justice of God. Wrath can melt into mercy and God can be all the more the Christian God. But if justice be dissolved in leniency, how can the just God, whom, 
How can he be the just God whom Scripture describes? In other words, Martin Luther is, is asking a question that very few people ask today. Martin Luther was saying, if God is a just God, how can I ever get into heaven? Most people want to know today, if God is so loving, how can anybody go to hell? Martin Luther wants to know, if God is really just, if he's a judge that doesn't just sweep sin under the rug, how can I ever get into heaven? His final stumbling block came about because Paul unequivocally speaks of the justice of God. Um, I'm going to read to you what Martin Luther himself wrote. I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice of God. Because I took it to mean the justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. In other words, he's like... Of course God is just. I have no hope. My situation was that although I was an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience. And I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. And he's right about that, isn't he? Therefore, I did not love a a just and an angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul, and I had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through the open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me an inexpressibly sweet and greater love. It's a beautiful story. It's a beautiful story. You can imagine these men never having the the word of God understandable. For the first time, it's like, you know, when a a new person comes to belief and faith, you can't just hand them a Bible and say, good luck, right? That's what many of these men had. They just had the scriptures. You can imagine him pouring through the book of Romans with no one really to help him discovering these beautiful gems of the gospel that we maybe take for granted. Just as Huss was called a Wycliffeite, you know what they called Martin Luther? They called him the Saxon Huss. They threw shade, to use a young person's term, They threw shade on Huss by calling him a Wycliffeite. They threw shade on Martin Luther by calling him a Hussite. In his day, the relic trade and the selling of indulgences was in full steam. You know what I mean by the relic trade? People were going around selling these relics, saying things like that. They would sell you a splinter of wood and and they would tell you that it was a piece of the cross that Jesus died on. And the funny thing is, there were so many of these that if you were to bring them into one spot and pile them up in a pile, it would be so much larger than any Roman cross would ever be. I mean, it was just completely foolish what was going on. But, the, but these pieces of wood and other little relics uh, would, be, uh, would be sold. They would be blessed by the priest and then sold to raise money for the church. This relic trade and the selling of indulgences was in full steam. Pope Clement VI had issued a statement saying, 
get this, saying that there existed a treasury of merit. In other words, this big treasure trove, this, maybe this room in the bottom of the, you can picture it in your mind. There, there was a treasury of merit that a person could access because of Christ's work. Now we believe that too, don't we? There is a treasury of merit that Christ has stored up for anybody who has faith. But the difference was, the Pope said that this treasury of merit could be accessed by a purchase. In 1476, Pope Sixtus IV declared that these indulgences could apply to purgatory as well. In other words, there were people in purgatory, which is an extra-biblical doctrine itself that the Catholic Church created, there was a, a place of purgatory that people kind of existed in this limbo in between hell and heaven. And what you could do is you could purchase indulgences on behalf of those people who were dead and in purgatory. And it was into this context that authorized by the Pope, the hireling preacher John Tetzel or Johann Tetzel, he traveled around preaching these impassioned sermons. He would often... I don't know, I took, I took the author of a book to say that he would actually mimic the wails of dead parents who were supposedly in purgatory trying to convince their living kids to purchase indulgences to get them out of purgatory. There was a phrase that he would use. It's on the top of the final page. When a coin in the coffer rings, you know what a coffer is, right? It's like a money box. It would be like our offering plates. When a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. It was too much for the Saxon Huss to tolerate. On October the 31st, 1517, so 505 years ago tomorrow, I suppose, Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the, the castle church in Wittenberg. This tour de force against the Roman Catholic Church and its abuses in time sent shockwaves through the world. It included barbed questions like this one. And, and Luther was so clever. When he wrote this, he said, you know, I'm having lay people come up to me asking me this. Wink, wink. In other words, it was really probably his own thoughts, but he, he was saying, you know, these lay people keep asking me stuff like this. Why doesn't the Pope empty purgatory for the sake of holy love? In other words, if he's got the power to do it, why is he waiting on payment? In the dire need of souls that are there, if, if, they're, uh, if he redeems an infinite number of souls for the sake of miserable money with which to build a church. In other words, if, if he can do it for money, why can't he just do it for love? As a result, he was ordered to the Diet of Worms to answer for his heresy. Uh, this was basically a trial, a heresy trial, where he was summoned to give an account for the things that he had, uh, he had been teaching and that he had posted on those 95 theses. The penalty for not recanting, in other words, he was given the option, you, Luther, you can take it back, recant, swallow your words, Take them all back, or you can die. Luther's response was this in italics on your sheet. Since then, your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will answer without horns and without teeth. 
Unless I am convicted by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. The earliest printed version of this speech includes the words right before he says, God help me, here I stand. I can do no other. And it is from that statement that Roland Bainton gets his title, Here I Stand. The book is available in our church library. You could borrow my copy if you like. So, how do we apply this to the gospel? Well, We are Protestants because we believe the following. We have one priest, Jesus Christ, the righteous. 1 Timothy 2.5 says this. If I can find it quickly enough. 1 Timothy 2.5. Let's just begin in verse 1. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. He's encouraging people to pray. And he's saying, this is good and pleasing. Who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So now it's not only prayer, not only prayer is in the context, but salvation is too. Right? So he's talked about prayer and salvation. Come to God to pray. Come to God for salvation. For there, verse 5, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus. We believe that there is one mediator. Friends, I'm a pastor I have responsibility before God. I will have to answer for how well, how faithfully I have shepherded you. But you don't get access to God by coming through me. There is one mediator between God and men, Christ Jesus. We believe that. We also believe that we have the word of God. And it is the word of God alone that saves. Romans ten seventeen. faith comes by hearing. And that by indulgences? And that by the communion table? And that by the word of Christ. We believe that we can come to God simply through the finished work of Jesus Christ because he said on the cross, what is one word in Greek, tetelestai. It is finished. There is no more work to do. There is no more church procedures to go through. There is no more penance to make before God. Thirdly, we believe this, justification, which means right status with God. Some of you may have heard, what does it mean to be justified as a kid? It's justified, never sinned, right? Justification is by faith alone, through grace alone, apart from works. 
I want to read to you a couple of things why this is so important from R.C. Sproul's Are We Together? I have a copy of this book. You're, I, don't know, I don't believe it's in our church library. You're welcome to borrow mine. It's, Are We Together? A Protestant Analyzes Roman Catholicism. It says this. Uh, it's very important that at the Council of Trent, which occurred in... I don't know that. Somebody can probably Google it fast. 15, uh, uh, 1545 to 1563. So they're responding to the, to the Reformation. They're responding to Luther and Calvin. They're trying to figure out what their doctrine is. At the Council of Trent, they said that certain beliefs were anathema. In other words, certain beliefs are anti-gospel. And one of the things that they said in 1545 and following that is anathema is justification by faith alone. We understand that to be the gospel. We understand that there are no works that can get us right before God. Justification is by faith through grace, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. The Roman Catholic Church is still today on record saying that we are anathema for believing that. Vatican II, which happened in the 1960s, brought many revisions. That was a, it was a council of the church, that, that a council of the Roman Catholic Church is called Vatican II. They made many revisions to their doctrine. They did not roll back those anathemas at the Council of Trent. They are still on record today saying that we are anathema for believing in justification by faith alone. I'll read to you how Sproul puts it. The Roman Catholic Church responded to the Protestant criticisms at the Council of Trent, where it gave official, formal decrees with respect to its doctrine. Justification was discussed in the sixth session, and the church laid out a number of decrees regarding its view, as well as 33 specific condemnations or anathemas of different views, which Rome, Catholic Church, regarded as repudiations or error and heresy. Each of these condemnations was couched in a consistent formula. If anyone says, dot, 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 let him be anathema, which means let him be damned. Let him go to hell, right? This is significant. It is the, they clearly anathematize the Reformation doctrine of justification by faith alone. This is significant. If the Reformation articulation or the Reformation view of the biblical doctrine of justification was correct, and I, of course, believe that it was, to anathematize it is to anathematize the gospel. He says earlier in the book, but as far as the Roman hierarchy is concerned, he's basically saying there are plenty of of Catholic people and even priests throughout. It's It's a big tent, right? And many different people believe many different things. I personally have the view that there are many people who are in the Roman Catholic Church who are saved. But I believe that they are saved because they are believing something that their church officially does not teach. I believe that if, I, I think it's just clear, it's not really doesn't depend on what I believe, it's what their doctrine says and what our doctrine says, that if you believe what the Roman Catholic Church says, you are not believing the true gospel. I believe there are many people in the Roman Catholic Church who are not believing what their church says, but are believing the biblical gospel. Praise God. I pray that their tribe may increase. 
But as far as the Roman hierarchy is concerned, the Council of Trent stands immutable on its teaching regarding justification. We cannot ignore what the Council of Trent said in evaluating where we stand in relation to the church and the ongoing relevance of the Reformation. And with that, I'll just end um, with reading Romans 3. I do want to tell you this, though, just so that your, your wheels can be turning. Since this has been more of a teaching session, I want to be able to respond pastorally to any questions that may have come up. So in the next 11 verses of Romans, if you can come up with a question and you would like to ask it, I'll do my best. may not have an answer for you. I'll do my best to respond to that. But let's finish by reading Romans 3, 21 through 31. It says this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, which just means a propitiation is a payment that turns back God's wrath. Propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. That's that word that Martin Luther got tripped up over, right? The justice, the righteousness of God. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine patience, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Martin Luther wondered, how can God be just and forgive anybody? Paul says, by putting forth his own son. He is the just and the justifier of anyone who has faith in Christ. Then what becomes of our boasting? In other words, if we work for our salvation, we should boast. What becomes of our boasting if, if Jesus did it all? Our boasting is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Friends, we stand on this rock, and this rock is that there is no good work that can make us acceptable before God, but Jesus has done every good work necessary to bring us to Him. Is there a treasury of merit available? Yes, there is a treasury for, of merit available to us, and it is not for sale. It was free. It was paid for on the cross and anyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ, confesses their sins and turns away from them can access this treasury of merit that was earned by Jesus' perfect life in our behalf. Let's pray and then we'll take any questions that you might have. Lord, you are so kind to us. I pray that the presentation tonight will not have seemed like a dry and dusty uh, just exercise in, in history, but that it would fuel our love for you because we see just as at the time of the writing of the New Testament, you have been kind to your church. You rose up men from within it, 
from within the very people of God to return, ad fontes, to return to the sources, to return to the Word of God and to exalt the Word of God so that people might be saved. And we today stand on the shoulders of men who are willing to be burned at the stake. We stand on the shoulders of men who are willing to be driven into the Vartburg Castle in hiding. And we have this pure and unadulterated biblical gospel because men were willing to risk it all that it might be known. May we take this gospel, tell our neighbors, and tell those in the farthest reaches of the earth about the God who saves because forgiveness for sins is absolutely free. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Folks, I hope this was helpful to you. I confess there was so much I was not able to cover. I mean, we're right here at 7 o'clock. I didn't even even talk about Calvin. I didn't even talk about Zwingli. I really only dipped my toes into Roman Catholic Church belief. And I, I may have done so at the expense of making you think that the Roman Catholic Church today is in the exact same spot they were in the 1500s. It's not the case. I tried to highlight that Vatican II brought many revisions, um, but at the same time, I, I feel like there's a lot of weaknesses in trying to get through this just in 45 minutes. I've done the best that I can. Perhaps we can continue the conversation, um, but I do want to note those weaknesses of what I've tried to present to you today. What questions do you have? Anybody at all? The Methodist. Um, so that, that would be a much later development. Um, you know, so clearly the Lutherans would be the ones who came directly out of, the, out of Martin Luther's tradition. Um, trying to think about Methodist origins. I, I, I don't know that just right off the cuff I have a, a straight answer for that. I don't think it was a direct uh, connection, but they would be uh, the, the, the Wesleys, um, Charles Wesley and John Wesley, um, it certainly came out of the Protestant tradition that Luther helped kick off. Um, yeah. Other questions? Yes, ma'am. That that's a good question. No, ma'am. Uh, as a matter of fact, this is one of the areas that we feel the weight of history against us. Of all of the. Of all of the reformers, in Zwingli, um, Bullinger, Calvin, Luther, others, none of these people were credo-baptists. In other words, that they baptized those who believe. These men were paedo-baptists. They baptized children. Okay? So, uh, Baptists came, uh, came about 100 years later. There are two theories about how Baptists... Uh, arose. Some people say that Baptists arose from the Anabaptist movement. So the Anabaptist movement were, were in the Netherlands. Um, and, and so the, their descendants today would be the Amish and Mennonites, who, many of whom live around here. Some people say that Baptists came out of that movement. That's not my view. I think most of the scholarship now is saying, uh, agrees that Baptists came out of the English Puritan movement. Uh, so the Puritan movement, uh, these Calvinistic, um, Calvinistic people who were in the Church of England, uh, separated from the Church of England, some stayed in the Church of England, Baptists separated from the Church of England. Baptists were separatists who came out of that, that Calvinistic movement, 
uh, and were very much from, from their origins that way, and they uh, spread, many of whom came to America for uh, religious freedom and religious tolerance. So that, that second view seems to be the one that most are agreeing with now. Yeah. But no, we, we feel the weight of history against us, which uh, we're, we're used to that as Baptists. Anyone else? Okay. Mm-hmm. We came out of and the Anabaptists. I don't know how to say it now. Mm-hmm. Well, give me a definition of the Anabaptists. Yep. So they were they were radical reformers. They they were part of the Reformation, but they were uh, extreme in their separation. So you have men like Calvin, um, men like Zwingli, who understood church-state relations to be very intertwined. The church and the state could be very intertwined. The Anabaptists believed in a full separation from the culture. We see that today in a certain way uh, in, in the Mennonites and Amish folks who live around us. They believe that one of the ways they can remain distinct from the culture to be separate is to have differences in transportation, differences in dress, things like that. So they're, they're trying to maintain that principle. Uh, the Anabaptist, um, uh, they, a, the, the word Anabaptist just means rebaptizers. Yeah. So, and, and that's an epithet, by the way. They understood themselves to just be baptizing believers. So they would be very much like us in that way. That's like, when you believe, we'll baptize you. Well, other people who think that the baby baptism was legitimate, they think that's your real, bapti- that's your real baptism. They're looking at the Anabaptists saying, what are you baptizing people again for? It's already happened when they were a kid. You guys are Anabaptists. You're rebaptizers. So it wasn't the name that they chose for themselves. It was kind of a name put on them. Uh, and, and they eventually in time owned it. And, uh, and here we are today. And I share a story, but not a story. Okay. She was so upset. I've had preached, but now I think I'll have bopped him on the head. But he went in there and tried to convince her that if the baby didn't live and there was some question about it, he didn't go up through the birth canal and baptize that infant, then that infant was going to hell. Yeah. Yeah. she was tore all the I bet. Oh, fair enough. We we can we can have confession later. Yeah. <laughs> Any anybody else questions? Yes, sir. I don't believe so. Uh, I, the question was, is there still a group who, who believes in buying these indulgences? I'm not aware of it, if that's the case. I will say, though, that some of the Catholic missions that occurred in different parts of the world um, was very much pre-Reformational. 
And so here's what I mean. If you go into South America, if we're able to go on a mission trip, which I you know, feel like I got 10 plates spinning, I'm hoping it would be a possibility in 2023, we can go into a little village in, in Peru, um, and they're at the Catholic Church. Uh, there, <clears throat> there are these little figures on the four corners of the Catholic Church there in the town. And those little figurines on the corners are the local gods. Because the way that the Catholic Church spread through new areas, parts of the New World, South America, was by simply adopting whatever the local gods were into the Catholic faith. And saying, oh, you've got a local god here? We'll call that Saint such and such of Kurawasi or a saint such and such of Limatambo, and they would take the existing religion of the people and mesh it into the Catholic church and at the tip of the spear say, you're Catholics now. And here's, here's kind of a compromise. Um, and friends, Protestants are, are not, we don't have clean hands either, historically. Protestants have done some bad stuff too, okay? And I'm not trying to present ourselves as we're the white knights here, but uh, I am Protestant because of what we believe. Uh, I, I'm not Protestant because I think everyone who has ever been Protestant is a perfect person. Uh, but uh, uh, hopefully that's helpful. Oh, okay. I got you. And the lady cuts my hair. She says, told her she was a Catholic. Gotcha. Yeah. I don't think she's actually Catholic, but anyway. All right. <laughs> Anybody else? I, I want to give you one caution. Um, the same tendencies that infected the church in the past are still tendencies of the heart that we wrestle with today. Catholics may have confession. They may have Hail Marys and things like this. We have our own vernacular. We call it asking Jesus into our heart, right? And th- those words you won't find in the Bible, but I can, I can bet you if, if everyone in the room was honest, we've asked Jesus into our heart about 15 times. Because we have these seeds of doubt in our own hearts too, right? Was Jesus' sacrifice enough or do I need to get right with him again today? Now clearly we all want to repent, but friends, we are not saved because we said the sinner's prayer in just the right way or just enough times. We are saved by having an imperfect faith in a perfect Savior, Jesus Christ. And with that, why don't, we, why don't we finish our time? Thank you for coming tonight. Hope you have a good night. If you have any other questions, I'll do the best I can. You are dismissed.